Grace to you and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So here at Connect for the past couple of weeks, we've been focusing on the book of Judges, a book that's not really all that familiar to us typically. And um, if you've caught those sermons the last couple of weeks um, and or if you read the Word for Wednesday devotion that was sent out this past week, uh, you might remember that in the book of Judges, there's this cycle that, that takes place over and over again, just repeated over and over again. Uh, a, B, C, D, right? You remember this? So what does the A stand for? Abandon. The people of Israel abandon Yahweh. They abandon the one true God and, and go after idols. And so God hands them over to their enemies and they are, what's the B? Beaten down. Next week, everybody's going to say this really loudly. I just I have a feeling. They're beaten down by their enemies and by the effects of their sins. So they cry out to God for rescue. And then they are delivered. They're delivered by a judge, by a, a savior that God sends. And the cycle goes over and over again, just kind of repeats. And, and things seem to get kind of worse and worse in this downward spiral, right? Um, so... We've had the chance the last couple of weeks to look at how this all happens in the context of Ehud, the left-handed assassin, and then last week we looked at Deborah, the the only female judge, and today we examine the life of Gideon. Now, when we first meet Gideon, uh, Gideon is in a pretty sad place, and that sad place is a wine press. Um, Now, a wine press is not sad in and of itself. But this is a sad place for Gideon because of what he's doing there. He's threshing wheat. He's separating the good stuff from the chaff. And uh, normally this activity would be done out in a a big, wide open space called a threshing floor. But Gideon is in this small, closed off wine press because he is afraid. He's afraid of Midian, the the Midianites, this nomadic people from the desert who have have swept into Israel's land and and kicked out the residents and taken all of their crops. Back in Numbers 31, uh, God had commanded the Israelites to completely wipe out the Midianites. But as happens a lot in the book of Judges, a people who seem to have been conquered long ago come back to rear their ugly head because of Israel's disobedience, kind of like a a villain in a horror movie where, where he just keeps coming back and just won't go away. And so Gideon is hiding. He's hiding his wheat and hiding himself from his enemies. Gideon is demoralized. Gideon is insecure. Gideon is a coward. This is where we meet Gideon. But this is also where Gideon meets Yahweh. And the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I just love how the the ESV translates this, because Gideon twice says, Please, please, Lord. And and I don't think it's kind of a, a polite, Oh, please, Lord. I think it's kind of a, Are you kidding me? Sort of please. Please, a mighty man of valor, do you have any idea who I am? Do you, do you know what's going on in our life? Yeah, we've heard from of old that Yahweh was with us, but he's clearly not with us anymore. And, and as for me, I am from the clan that, or from the family that is the, the weakest in my clan, the weakest clan in my tribe, and, and I am the very least in my family. Gideon was, was absolutely having none of it. In Gideon's eyes, he was the weakest and the least. 
And I bet there have been times where you've felt that way as well. Gideon heard, Yahweh is with you. But he didn't believe it. Do you? Do you believe what, what Yahweh has said about you? That you are loved. That all of your sins are forgiven. That no power in hell can stand up against you. The God who called the cowardly Gideon, a mighty man of valor, has also called a broken sinner like you, holy and righteous. We'll soon see that God was right about Gideon. Gideon was a mighty warrior, not because he had some hidden strength that was deep down within himself that he just had to find and, and tap into. He was a mighty warrior because it was true that Yahweh was with him. And God is right about you too. You are not holy and righteous because deep down within yourself, you're really a good person in the end. You're not. None of us are. You are holy and righteous because Jesus bled and died for you and then he rose from the dead. Yahweh is with you, friend. Through Christ, God has upgraded your identity. Receive it. Believe it. Because the thing about God's power is that it is made perfect in weakness. God has a penchant for choosing the weakest and the least. In Gideon, God chose to call a coward. God chose to call a coward a mighty man of valor. And then he gave Gideon a a tough first assignment. Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. So here we start to get a a better idea of Gideon's situation here. His own dad has an altar to Baal, the false god, in his own backyard. Gideon had been threshing wheat, and now he's called to thresh Israel, to, to strike at the heart of the problem, idolatry. And in doing that, he has to start at home. He has to to tear down all that his father has worked for, all that his dad has spent, you know, all the years that his dad has spent teaching and and defending and, and promoting this idolatry that's responsible for all of Israel's woes. And maybe there's a sin in your family's history that, that God desires for you to stand up against the scourge of alcoholism or addiction, financial irresponsibility, sexual promiscuity. Just spiritual apathy? If so, you probably have an idea of how terrifying Gideon's mission must have been for him. And you can understand why he did it at night. In fact, the scriptures tell us quite explicitly that he did it because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town. And he was afraid for good reason because it turns out that in the morning when they find out what's happened, all the men in the town are about to kill him. And the only reason he survives is because his dad convinces them to let Baal contend with him himself. And so Gideon gets this nickname that, that will outlive him, Jerob Baal, let Gideon contend, or let, sorry, let Baal contend with him. And so from this moment on, every single breath Gideon takes is a testament to the impotence of the false god. But despite God's powerful statement through Gideon, Gideon still doesn't feel very powerful at all. He's full of excuses. And God is dissuaded by none of them. When Gideon told him he was the weakest and the least, Yahweh responded by saying, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And Gideon responded to this 
by asking for a sign. The angel of the Lord was, was there visiting him, and uh, he had prepared a meal for him. And, and when Gideon asked for a sign, rather than striking him down, God gives him a sign. God begins to, to pare down Gideon's doubts. So Gideon prepares this meal, as, as you would do in these days. And, and then the angel of the Lord brings this fire that just completely destroys the meal. And then the angel of the Lord vanishes. And Gideon's doubts vanish right along with him, at least for a while. It's not too long before Gideon asks God for another sign, the sign that he's most famous for. He takes this fleece and he lays it out on the, the threshing floor, so at least he's, he's out of the wine press at this point. And he asks God that in the morning, may the dew be collected in the fleece and may the ground all around it be dry. And so God does that. Baal was supposed to be the one who was in charge of the rain, who controlled all of those things. And, and here Yahweh proves that, that he alone controls the blessing of the morning dew. But then Gideon realizes, after God does this, that, that the whole point of a fleece is to soak up all the moisture while the person wearing it remains dry during the night. And, and so he asked God to, to do something a little more obvious, to reverse the sign, to have the fleece be dry and everything else be wet around it. And God does. God is willing to use Gideon's wet blanket and then his bone-dry blanket to bolster Gideon's faith. And then God gives Gideon a third sign before he even asks for it. On the, the night before they attacked the Midianites, uh, any th confidence that Gideon had gained from the, the soaking of the fleece has evaporated. And, and so God sends him down to the Midianites' camp at night, where he hears the interpretation of a dream that one of the Midianites had had that showed that Gideon is going to be successful and have a great victory the next morning. So through these three signs, God encourages Gideon and, and builds up his fledgling faith. But then the other sandal drops. After the thing with his dad's altar, God sends his spirit upon Gideon, and Gideon raises up an army of 32,000 men, which sounds like a lot until you realize that that the enemy had about four times that much. And so Gideon realizes that he doesn't have the right number of men to complete his mission, and he needs God to fix it. And so God does fix it. God gives him the right number. But not as he's expecting, and certainly not as he's hoping. God says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so God, after paring down Gideon's doubts, begins to pare down his army. He tells everybody who's, who's afraid to go home. And two-thirds of Gideon's army abandon him right then and there. And then of the remaining 10,000 left, he whittles the army down to 300 based on how they drink water out of a river. Imagine if the U.S. Army used criteria like that to recruit its soldiers. Now, some have said that the 300 who, who lapped the water like a dog, kind of out of their hands, uh, were probably the best of the best because it means they didn't get down on their knees and, and render themselves vulnerable to attack. But it sure seems silly to me to suggest that God was going to defeat the Midianites with only 300 men. But in order to do that, he had to have the very best 300 
I don't think their level of skill really matters at all. In fact, they could very well have been the weakest and the least. The point is, now they are outnumbered not four to one, but 450 to one. Now, it's a little dark in here, um, but if you kind of look around, get, get an idea of how many people are in here. Just go ahead. Look around. Notice how many, how many people are here. We usually have, I don't know, a little over 400 people in, in a Connect service here. So there's maybe close to 450. I don't know exactly. Now, imagine all of these people, every single person in here, even me, not that that really matters much, you have to defeat all of them in a battle to the death all by yourself. Yeah. I see a few faces out there hoping, hoping that that's not the next thing that happens in the sermon. This is what Israel's up against. And all because Yahweh directed it to be this way. God had slowly been chipping away at, at Gideon's doubts and now he's pretty quickly chipping away at all the reasons Gideon has to be confident. Sometimes God does this. Sometimes he uh, gives us signs or or little encouragements to to strengthen our faith. And then other times he allows these these challenges, these times of winnowing to come along and to test our faith. Maybe you can think of of times in your life where either or both of those things have been the case. These things drive us back to the the fact that that Paul shares with the Corinthians in our epistle lesson for today. Something that, that we need to hear also. That God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God whittled Gideon's army down to 300. And we'll see in a few minutes that God granted those 300 another miraculous and incredible victory. But that victory was nothing, nothing, compared to the greatest and most improbable victory that God ever had. When God defeated Satan's massive army and all the powers and principalities and forces of evil by paring down his army to one man hanging on a cross. This army of one appeared to have been brutally defeated. But in the death of this one man, God worked deliverance for us all. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, that's precisely what Gideon and his 300 men did. As they came to the Midianite camp by night, they split into three companies, taking with them, you know, what you'd normally take into battle, a trumpet in one hand and a a clay jar holding a torch in the other. 300 men with these things in their hands uh, going up against this massive army. But when Gideon blows his trumpet... The other men are instructed to blow theirs as well and then to shout out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Scripture says every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army of the Midianites ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled and the men of Israel pursued after Midian. The Israelites end up capturing and killing the two princes of Midian that are there. Now, their names are Oreb and Zeb, in case anybody is looking for some good baby names today. Once again, in the most upside down of ways, God has given his people victory 
and deliverance. For the Lord and for Gideon. God certainly gave victory to them both. In in chapter 8, we read that that Gideon died in a good old age, which is a phrase in the Old Testament reserved for, for Gideon, for Abraham, and for David. Really good company. God used Gideon to do mighty and heroic things. Gideon certainly did mighty and heroic things for the Lord. But unfortunately, though Gideon started out for the Lord, he ends up being much more concerned in the end about doing things for Gideon. After Gideon's first victory over the Midianites that night, God, who's been talking throughout this entire account, doesn't speak again. And Gideon doesn't ask him to. After Deborah and Barak's victory over the Canaanites that we talked about last week, they had praised Yahweh for his deliverance with a song. Here, there is absolutely no mention of Gideon or anybody in Israel praising God for this improbable victory at all. And though Gideon is buried as a hero, there are three things that suggest that Israel is in trouble going forward. First, Gideon quickly becomes motivated by vengeance instead of Yahweh's directives. So after this victory at night, uh, Gideon and the Israelites are pursuing the Midianites, and, and they're very hungry along the way. So they stop in these two Israelite towns asking for bread. But these towns are afraid that if the Midianites end up winning, they're going to have retribution against them, and, and so they refuse. And so Gideon goes on and, and takes care of the Midianites and comes back, just as he promised, to one of the cities he comes and the scripture says, quote, teaches them a lesson using thorns and briars. And then he goes to the other city and tears down their tower and kills all of the men there. Gideon's thirst for personal revenge against his own people begins this very dangerous slide down for the judges and will culminate in Samson, who we'll talk about next week as we finish up our series. Second, Gideon is asked by the Israelites after all of this to be king. And Gideon rightly and humbly says no, that Yahweh alone is ruler of Israel. But then he does something incredibly concerning. Um, in, in a way eerily similar to what Aaron had done when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he commands the Israelites to give them his gold. And then he forms not a golden calf, but a golden ephod, this, uh, this vest that the high priest was supposed to wear to kind of communicate with God. And, and so uh, this ephod becomes an idol. Judges 8 says that all Israel came to worship the ephod, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. In chapter 6, Gideon had used an article of clothing, a, a fleece, to test God. In chapter 8, Gideon creates an article of clothing that becomes a false god. Gideon, the the first judge to strike at the heart of Israel's problem, to strike at the heart of idolatry, ends up being the first judge to lead his people back into idolatry. Now the judges themselves are responsible for resetting the cycle of, of A, B, C, D. Things have gotten really bad. Third, Gideon, the, the man who says he has no desire to be king, ends up naming one of his sons Abimelech, which is Hebrew for, my dad is a king. When Gideon dies, everything goes terribly wrong. 
Abimelech ends up killing his 70 brothers to take control of the throne that his father had refused. You might remember last week I I mentioned a bad guy who, who has a millstone dropped on his head by a woman. That was Abimelech, Gideon's son. Gideon's own son ends up destroying his family, comes very close to destroying Israel. So what are we to make of all of this? There's a lot of good things to learn from Gideon's story. That God gladly uses the weakest and the least for his glory. That, that Yahweh is with us even and maybe especially when it looks like he is nowhere to be found. That none of our strength, none of our victory can ever be attributed to us. But it is all a gift of God through Christ. And yet Gideon's story seems to end like a Shakespearean tragedy where all of the good that has been accomplished comes completely unraveled at the end. But this is not where Israel's story ends. And it's not where yours ends either. On the eve of Good Friday, it looked as if all of the good that Jesus had accomplished during his ministry was coming completely unraveled. Death had won. Satan was victorious. God's people were the weakest and the least, doomed to an eternity of threshing wheat in the wine press. But Jesus rose up from the grave, and his victory tramples over Gideon's failures and Israel's idolatry and your sin and my sin. God was not done with Israel. He would use them to bring to us the perfect judge, Jesus Christ, who has delivered us for eternity. And God's not done with you either. You may be a a poor, miserable sinner. We all are. But God has redeemed you. And God is going to use you in in your mustard seed faith for his purposes and his glory. So once again, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we'll wrap up our Judges series by, by looking at the most famous and also the hairiest judge of all, Samson. Until then, may the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.